0: Welcome to Conservation Conversations. I'm Sean O'Brien, the President and CEO of NatureServe. And I'm really happy here to be here today with, you're going to say it.
1: <laughs> Regan Smythe.
0: Because everybody gets it wrong, because <laughs> it's spelled in unusual ways, but totally logical at the same time. So Regan is here. Regan is our Vice President for Data and Methods. And so what does that mean at NatureServe?
1: So NatureServe is a source of information on, as you well know, but for um, North America's biodiversity, so species and ecosystems. And in my role at NatureServe, I oversee a lot of our information management systems and the data we maintain that help people understand where species occur, what's at risk, how things are doing.
0: And how did you come into this role? I know you have a master's degree in science yeah so i'm actually
1: yes um so i was trained as a spatial ecologist so kind of looking across landscapes um and um using maps and analyses to understand how ecosystems function um at at large scales i've Worked at NatureServe for 16 years now in uh, a bunch of different capacities. Started out as sort of a GIS analyst, uh, regional ecologist working in the southeast, and then became more and more involved in a lot of our species efforts as well. Um, habitat modeling. Um, was director of spatial analysis here for a while before moving into
0: the position I'm in now. Which we're super excited to have you in. It's great. Um, so one of the things that you got to do as the vice president for Data and Methods is oversee a recent project that NatureServe undertook sort of on our own. We didn't have outside funding for this. We just thought this was a really important thing to do. We created this report called Biodiversity in Focus. What what is biodiversity in focus? What what did we find? Yeah.
1: So this report is really a synthesis of not just the work NatureServe does, but the work that our partners in the NatureServe network do, collecting this information about the nation's biodiversity. The outcomes of that, I mean, are really pretty startling. Um, so one of the things we looked at in the report is for animals and plants and ecosystems in the United States, what percent of those are at risk? And the numbers are are pretty shattering. So 34 percent of plants, 40 percent of animals are at risk of extinction and 41 percent of ecosystems
0: are at risk of collapse. So you said a couple of interesting things they are really important things that are, I think, part of what make nature so special. Okay. plants and animals and ecosystems. And when we talk about plants and animals, we're not just talking about vertebrates or just birds or something like that. Like because of the network, we talk, we're we talking about everything. Mm-hmm. So what? Like, how is that special? How is that different?
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the really unique things about this report is that it does look at that full diversity of life, right? Like we're not just looking at the birds and the amphibians. We're looking at the pollinators, the butterflies, the bees, the things that pollinate our crops. Um, We're looking at freshwater invertebrates like mussels and crayfish and caddisflies, things that people might not immediately think about and care about, but which sustain the ecosystems on which we all depend. And this is really the first time we've comprehensively looked at that data for the United States.
0: And what's so interesting is you have this sort of headline, right? 30% of our animals are sorry 30% of the 34% of animals 40% of the animals are at risk but if you look into the details right when you look at aquatic species it's even more terrifying mm-hmm. right the number the percentage of mussel species that are at risk is just staggering
1: yes and that's one of the the well no. not neat things about the report because I don't think it's good news but being able to drill down and ask you know what's the the overall statistic on how biodiversity is doing, but the knowledge beneath that, the knowing that freshwater mussels are particularly imperiled, knowing that those are the species that have this important role providing ecosystem services and cleaning our waters and streams, we now have the information that kind of helps us know where our conservation dollars should be going. And while freshwater mussels might not be the thing that people immediately pull out their checkbook for, I think the kind of information we're generating in this report provides that science-based background that understands you know, what we do need to invest in if we want biodiversity to continue to thrive in this so
0: country. I've had the opportunity in the past couple of years to be in the field with mm-hmm. a couple of network muscle aficionados. And uh, if you knew about muscles the way I have come to learn about muscles, and I know you do, but like if people knew about muscles, everybody would be excited about They're muscles. Cool. They're so cool. The stuff that they do is just mind-blowing. They, like, um, go
1: on the, the lungs of fish and, you know, get transported around rivers as, like, a property. And they make lures
0: to. and everything. They're it's super cool. Just <laughs> astonishing. So, let that be, you know, <laughs> yes. call to action. Go that. online and start looking up uh, freshwater mussels because you will you will learn a lot. Okay. Um, so, this, uh, you brought up another thing where you said it's it's a neat thing, and, like, I find myself saying I'm excited to talk about this, but In fact, we're talking about some of the most scary information that any of us are going to deal with because we're talking about the viability of our biosphere. And so as a science communications issue, the challenge of like, how do we talk about it is very, uh, I find it very hard because I want to say I'm excited to show you this, but I am terrified to show you this at the same time. And so um, I just want to recognize that, that we're sort of having a a, a lighthearted conversation in a way. But you and I both know that really what we're talking about with 41% of ecosystems in danger of collapse, like collapsing ecosystems. Come on.
1: Yeah. I mean, Freshwater mussels are are cool and exciting to talk about. But the reason we're talking about them is because of that statistic that they're very at risk. And that is frightening. I mean, when you look at the life on Earth, like, yes, it's cool to talk about these meat animals, but th- that is the life that sustains us. It has, I think, intrinsic value. You know, to me, it like hurts my soul to know all these amazing critters and plants that have evolved over millions and million- millions of years. We're losing them at astonishing rates. Yeah. But it also, you know, threatens the future of, of mankind as well. And I think. It's great that people are talking about biodiversity now. Um, It's important we're having this conversation, but there really is an urgency to act. We are in a moment of crisis, and and we shouldn't be making light of that.
0: And I I couldn't agree with you more. It's really um, astonishing. Uh, And that's one of the things that's so powerful about the NatureServe network is that we have these data that are consistent across the entire country, really across the entire continent. Mm-hmm. Um, this report just focuses on the United States, but um, similar data are available for Canada. Um, so what, like what in the report is something that essentially only NatureServe could do? Like when you're trying to sort of say, oh, well, people say all the time, oh, this number of species are in danger of extinction. Mm-hmm. And we hear these reports come out periodically, but there's things that we can do at NatureServe because of the nature of our data and the nature of the network that nobody else can do. So what what in this report is in that category of unique?
1: So I think, you know, there's several things uh, even the big statistics, you just say anybody can say 41% are at risk, but that's not actually true. You need a, a consistent, repeatable methodology for assessing what's at risk. And that's something that NatureServe together with our network has has really been a powerful force in developing that methodology and then carrying it out. And carrying it out, not just where you have you know somebody in an office looking at data that's been collected by satellites, but carrying it out with the people who know the species best. So NatureServes Network, these programs that we have in every state and every province, are the people who know the local biodiversity well, and they're collecting the information on where those things are documented, how they're doing, and the fact that we've built these systems that allow it to flow up so that we can provide these comprehensive assessments is is pretty unique. Um, And in addition to to just that basic information on what's at risk, there's a wealth of information behind that, both the specific location data on where things have been documented and where they're likely based on habitat models, as well as information on threats. So we, we don't just say, you know, this is what's at risk, but we can say these are the drivers of risk. You know, we know climate change is a big one for certain species, but not all. We know pollutions and dams you know, really have impacts on those mussels and fishes and other freshwater diversity. And our data allows us to to drill in there, too. So with the report, you have the big statistics, but the information underlying it, and especially our partners in the state, really have the the detailed information that enables action and enables us to, to address this crisis.
0: So um, there's a couple things I want to follow up on there. One is um, as the vice president for data and methods, you would understand the importance of these consistent standards and methodology. Mm -hmm. And I just want to ask you to talk about that a little bit, because I think it's really interesting and important. Like there's nowhere else on earth, except for really the United States and Canada, where these kinds of data are so consistently available across such broad landscapes. Mm-hmm.
1: And the fact that it's available for biodiversity, which is one of the most complex systems around, you know, incidentally I've heard people talk about like police collecting data and how do you compare crime statistics across states and that's really hard to do, but we've figured out how to do it for it's, life in this country. It's which fantastic. Is Um, But it does take a lot of work. I mean, it's, it's a technology problem. So it's also an opportunity with kind of the explosion of technology in recent years, what we're able to do um, both in building systems that allow our partners to send us data, to curate that data, to QC it, to standardize it um, homogenize it so that you're able to do these analyses. Um, We're doing really neat stuff with like machine learning techniques to, add that added value onto that information that's coming into the field, but it takes a lot of work. I mean, it takes a lot of, it's a lot of work that's not particularly sexy or appealing, but biodiversity data manager is a job and there's people out there across the country who have that role. And that's what allows us ultimately to make smart conservation
0: decisions. And so before we talk about ecosystems for a minute, I just want to make that call out to the people in the network. So we're about, 60 people at NatureServe, sometimes call it NatureServe Central or the mothership or whatever, Um, but the network of about a 1,000 scientists all across the continent who are on the ground collecting the data, who are managing the data and putting it into the database and doing the work of interfacing with fish and game departments, parks departments, with universities, with other scientists. Um, When I've been out in the field with our our network programs, one of the things that's amazing to me is we're 60, And they're about a thousand, but they're then (laughs) networked out again. And so when we're going out in the field, you know, a a state natural heritage program might only have half a dozen employees, but we're out in the field with 20 people because somebody from all of these different Mm -hmm. environmental groups and from different parts of the government are there. And I think it's really astonishing how widespread NatureServe is and yet the most important organization nobody's ever heard of because we're we're sort of under the radar, we're right. this foundation.
1: And it's this foundation that allows a lot of things to happen. So it, you need those people who intimately know the environments they work in. And a lot of the great ideas that we've kind of capitalized on and built at Nature sort of come from those people out in this field, things like our Species Habitat Modeling Initiative. But that central role is pretty important. Um, to convene people. We just had a big training last week with a staff across the country and across Canada to, to kind of support that consistent collection of data. And by serving that role, we're able to tap into this great network of really devoted conservationists who are across the, the country, both in NatureServe network programs and as you said, in, in partner organizations who, who we work closely with as well.
0: So I want to talk about CCC's habitat modeling because you use the word habitat. And that's another thing that's unusual about both biodiversity and focus and NatureServe in the network is that we're not just a species-based organization. We also are really deeply involved in and are really foundational to international recognition of the different kinds of habitats that are on the ground. People throw around the term ecosystem. Mm -hmm. It's sort of a loosely defined concept until you get to the vegetation classification system that NatureServe worked on in partnership with a bunch of other organizations. But So talk about what it means to try to define ecosystems and how that all works.
1: Yeah. So just like for species, you need to define what you're talking about before you can assess how it's doing and make conservation decisions. You need that shared language. And so what we've been working on with many partners globally is developing a standard ecosystem classification in the United States. It's called the National Vegetation Classification, and that provides the Kind of the it allows us define to define the elements so that we can ask how protected is a particular ecosystem type you know what how is it doing um, where should we be acting to do any of that you first need that common language of of what are we what are we talking about what are we trying to conserve and that's a really important role that nature serves fills um
0: and it's the only reason we can say that 41 percent.
1: exactly <laughs> so getting back to the report um you know we looked across those ecosystems in the united states for if you want to get technical something called the national vegetation classification group um so those are things like you know particular types of longleaf t- pine forests um, and looked at the conservation status of those. So evaluated, how big is the extent? How protected is it? What are the threats to this particular type? And using that consistent methodology kind of came up with this figure that 41% of those ecosystems are at risk. And then we went a step further and looked at the protection status of each of those, Mm -hmm. right? So to ask, okay, it might be at risk, but if it's all protected, you know, maybe it's okay versus if it's not protected, we really have a problem. And what we saw there was... By and large, for both species and ecosystems, we're not we're not hitting the levels of protection that we really need to continue to sustain this diversity of
0: right. Life. So we're talking globally about thirty by thirty, which is protecting thirty mm-hmm. percent of the land and water by twenty thirty. In the United States, we call this America the Beautiful. <laughs> In Biodiversity and Focus, we took what's already protected according to the USGS database, which. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not 100% complete, but it is the best, right. you know, most, standard best available standard
1: data. Standard yeah. We
0: have. Um, and we overlaid that on the data that we have about imperiled species, but also the data we have from modeling of mm-hmm. imperiled species to develop what we call areas of unprotected biodiversity importance. Mm-hmm. And we have a map of that in the report, which I encourage everybody to go take a look at. It's quite fascinating. Yeah. But why is it important? Like, what can we do with it?
1: Yeah, so that, that map. So what we did there is we took for all those species that are at risk, um, well, or imperiled, the the most at risk species, we use the data that our network collects to build habitat models to say, okay, where in the landscape are you likely to have habitat for those species? we stacked them up and we assessed, you know, how big is the range size? Is it something that's only found in one spot? And then also how protected is that species? And so what that map in the report is highlighting is where you have areas where there's species with really limited ranges that are highly unprotected or multiple ones of those that occur together. And those areas really should be where we're focused on for our, where we can have the biggest bang for our buck. Yeah. for conservation efforts you know there's there's value in conserving all kinds of landscapes but we have limited resources and the kind of bright spots on those maps are where we have some really special places in this country that would benefit from conservation investment
0: and part of what's interesting about it to me is those areas are the places where the most imperil things are and so there's lots of areas that would be great to protect mm-hmm. but that sort of bigger scale conservation might miss some of the most imperiled species. And so if we're worried about extinction and we're worried about maintaining that genetic diversity on the landscape and just sort of the intactness of ecosystems, we need to look at some of these species with the narrow ranges and pay attention to the really imperiled species. And so I think it's quite amazing. Um, so what's, you know, what's your big takeaway from this report? And Attaching to that, um, I often get asked because I work in an organization that talks a lot about extinction. Um, like, how do you maintain optimism? Like, why do you, why are you hopeful
1: for the mm-hmm. future? I mean, I I think you need to be an optimistic person to work in this field. Um, you know, the the challenges are great, and I think that's one of the things that the report really points out. But if you look at you know, the first tables we have where we show the percent at risk by for plants and animals and ecosystems. One of the really amazing things about that is not just the numbers at risk, but just the numbers, like the diversity of life we have in it's this country. Cool. And we right. It's super cool. Um, I have. So I have an 11 year old son. Yesterday was President's Day. It was weirdly warm. They were at, in D.C. It was. In the '60s or something, they had a from school. He had a friend over from school, so they they went outside and they were poking around in the woods and came back all excited that they'd found this big mass of frog eggs. And the the friend who was visiting, he was like, "Yeah, I could poke them with my finger and feel the life inside it moving around." And that, like, the resilience of life, even in these kind of urban environments. Mm-hmm. I mean, it gives me hope. Um The challenges are great, you know. It's going to be 28 degrees later in the week and chances are that particular little bit of life isn't likely isn't going to make it you know the the threats like climate change are really real but for me personally seeing the you know the life that surrounds us seeing these two little boys so captivated and enthusiastic about it it gives me hope that you know people care like it's intrinsic in us to care we know that that life sustains us, and we have the science, and we're beginning to have the political will. With as you said, things like America Beautiful, to address that challenge. Um, I really hope that this report can help lay a path forward for how we make the most of those investments people are making in biodiversity. The data we have in it is pretty high level, but the data behind it is what will allow us to target solutions, and I think. Ultimately, that that is the way to remain helpful. You know, life persists. Um, Hopefully the full diversity of life can persist when we kind of bring science and technology and direct our conservation dollars well.
0: That's great. So one of the things I like about that is there was a moment there for these two young boys about it could be inspirational moments that could affect the rest of their life. Right, Mm -hmm. Finding these frogs eggs in February and all of that. and I like to ask people, what was what was the inspiration for them to come into this field? Mm-hmm. So what was your inspiration?
1: Um, so I've always kind of been fascinated by life, like my first high school biology class. Oh, this is awesome. Look at these cells dividing. But for me, the thing that really sent me into this career, I had this pretty formative experience when I was in, gra- uh, in undergrad, where I did a, a study abroad program called Semester at Sea. And we... Got on a ship, left from Vancouver and did a full circle of the earth and came back in um, in New Orleans. But that experience, I mean, one made me just in awe of the planet. You know, there'd be whales and dolphins and flying fish cresting with the ship. And we went to the Serengeti in Africa and coastal rainforest in Brazil and was just wowed by the planet. Um, but at the same time, I came back from that trip with just a sense of urgency that the planet was in trouble. You know, the, we, the ship went up, the um, docked in Shanghai and we couldn't see the skyline because the smog was there. We, um, the, and the Serengeti in Africa, like you saw these amazing animals, but you also saw the effects of desert desertification for both the people who live there and farm there and the wildlife. Um, and then coming into the United States, you know, we're, going up the Mississippi River and this surreal landscape just dotted by oil rigs in this channel of a river that's really been altered and lost a lot of its ecosystem functioning. And when I got back from that trip, I I was going into in my junior year in school. And that's when I was like, I, I have a personal calling to do something about this and landed at NatureServe and have really come to appreciate the biodiversity we have right in this country, it's really an amazing place. And I've felt the power of, of, you know, using data and science to answer those questions about how can we make sure that this, this little ball we live on, you know, I went all the way around it. It's really finite. It's hard to like miserably experience that. And that's why it's round. Um, But it, it, you know, definitely led me on this path and, and made me feel pretty passionately that this is what I need to be doing with my life.
0: And in some number of years when you're retiring and your one of your kids is sitting in a chair like this and they say, you know, my mom, this is what she did. What what do you hope that they'll be able to say about it, what you achieved with your career?
1: I mean, I hope one, that they'll be living in a world that's a little bit better for my career. Um, and I think to um to see, to see a problem and direct your efforts towards that, I hope that that would inspire my children and, and lead them with, with that world that keeps them, keeps them happy and, and keeps the sort of a, a, the wonder that wowed me on that trip, that a little piece of that is, is still left.
0: That's great. Well, um, for the people out there um, who are watching, you'll notice that this is the first time that uh, we've done conservation conversations in person. All of the other ones have been recorded over (laughs) Zoom. This is a great uh, opportunity both because of uh, where we are in the world in terms of people feeling safe being in personal spaces with other people, but also because I have this awesome colleague here and uh, Regan lives in the area and so we're able to do this in person. This is not the first time we've had a Nature Serve person on the program, but I hope that you see with Regan here that why it's so exciting to be at NatureServe because there's so many amazing and dedicated and passionate people trying to help reduce the impacts of the sixth extinction. So thank you for being here on the show. And thank you for all that you do. Thanks
1: very much, Son. Wouldn't work anywhere else.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. So thanks for joining us for Conservation Conversations. We look forward to seeing you again next month. In the meantime, please go to our website at natureserve.org. If you go to the website on the main page, you can find a link to the Biodiversity in Focus report, or you can go to natureserve.org slash BIF for Biodiversity in Focus to see uh, the report and download a copy of it. And you can also support NatureServe through uh, charitable donations on our website, and you can uh, rate Conservation Conversations on your favorite podcast platform. Those ratings do make a difference in terms of making this visible to other uh, listeners. So thanks for listening and we look forward to seeing you again soon.